Hello and welcome to Nightlight. Several years ago, I was in a conversation with a young student who was very troubled. I couldn't quite tell what was bothering him. Finally, after about 20 minutes of talking about peripheral issues that really weren't getting to the point, he, he opened up and he said, I don't love God. I said, well, are you, are you telling me you're angry at God? He said, no, 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 I don't mean I'm, I'm hating God. I just don't, don't love God. I don't even know how to love God. I don't know how to. And then I realized he was trying to figure out how to work up a certain kind of emotion, a certain kind of feeling. This is one of the uh, death traps of our era is uh, equating love with some kind of emotional feeling. Now, when I hear people say what I just said, it frustrates me because I know love is not, quote, a feeling, but love cut off from all emotion is a pretty dry affair. I have sadly known a few Christians over the years who married out of a sense of duty. They had some sense of ministry calling, and they felt that they would be good partners for each other in the fulfillment of that ministry. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that's always wrong. Maybe there are examples in, in church history where that really was a Holy Spirit-directed union. But I would hate to think that the only thing two people share in a marriage relationship is some sense of spiritual duty. I think if they are really spiritually awake enough to obey God on that level, then they will grow into the kind of marriage that the scriptures describe. And and that's my point. Love can grow. Love can develop real love, not the emotional of fervor that most people are looking for that they call love. And I don't want to get off into the whole issue of romantic love and marital love and all those other emotional issues that we could go into. I want to talk about how do you love God? It didn't take too long for me to help this young student sort this out. But it took him several years to walk it out. Now he is living in the love of God by loving the people around him on a level that really, in my experience, few men uh, of his background know how to do. He loves his family, of course, but he also loves uh, his employees he loves the down-and-out people that he encounters in the circles that he moves in. He's instrumental in uh, bringing redemption to the lives of many people. He has become a man who lives in the love of God. So I want us to look for a few minutes at the whole question of loving God. I wish we had a different word, you know, Agape 
really we need to do a whole study on agape because most people don't really know what it means. And they tend to think it means some kind of supernatural love that is beyond emotion and has no emotion in it, but just chooses the good for the other. I've heard sermons like that. Actually, they haven't been very comforting. They've uh, they've left me feeling like I just ate a cracker with, with no flavor in it. Uh, love, agape, the, per- the perfect love of God, the, the, the love that is described in the Greek New Testament by the word agape, is uh, it is the perfect love that chooses the, the best and the highest good, even at its own expense. But that doesn't mean that it therefore has no emotion in it because it is the perfect love that it is. It leaves all the room in the world for healthy emotions to develop. And this is the issue. The natural mind thinks that love should come first and then behavior should follow out of that love. But the New Testament doesn't teach that. And social psychology doesn't support the idea that love comes first and then out of love comes the right emotions uh, and the right feelings and then the right actions. Both the scriptures and social psychology studies that have been done on this subject show that when one behaves lovingly, in other words, when he obeys what can be commanded as loving action, his emotions or her emotions will eventually become lined up with that obedience. And the commandment of love produces the emotions of love. Now, you can obey God and not love him, but you cannot love God and not obey him. Love produces a desire to respond properly to the, to the love object, especially God himself. And so Jesus says in Luke 6, verse 40, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet do not obey me? Uh, every time I read that, I feel the sting of it. Jesus is not saying it to sting me. It stings me because I'm aware of the things in me that don't correspond yet with love. And so the mega commandment, the great commandment, uh, described in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 39, we all know this story. But uh, a young man comes to Jesus and says, Master, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's your inner core will, by the way. Your heart is not your blood pump. It's not your emotions. The biblical meaning of the word heart means the core in you, that from which you ultimately choose to to respond to. That's why Proverbs 4 says, watch over your heart with all diligence because out of it come the forces that control your life. 
your core values, I don't like the word values, it's a, it's a cheap word, your core uh, treasures, where your treasure is, there will your heart be, Jesus said. So loving the Lord your God with all your heart doesn't mean with all your emotions, it means with the absolute core of who you are, which of course then includes emotions, because he also says love him with all your soul. And that would be your affections. Love him with all your might, your physical strength. And then love him with all your mind, your thoughts. And then he adds something that was probably a little bit profound to some of his hearers. Not, not totally, because it's in the Torah. But he says, and the second is equal to the first. Now, the second being equal to the first makes the second first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two depend on all, or, or, or on these two hang all the law and the prophets. The Torah, we talk about the law and we talk about whether we're supposed to be under the law. Paul goes into lots of detail in Romans and other places about the fact that because of grace, we are no longer under law, and that has sadly become so misunderstood among many Christians that there are Christians, I, I read a statement just a few minutes ago, actually, I, I lifted it off my screen, but I was going to read it to you word for word. Some guy was commenting on uh, some other statement that he had read by a Christian on the subject of obedience to authority and so forth. And this guy went on to say in his response, we are not under any obligation to obey any law. God forgives us because of grace. Uh, that That is not what the scripture teaches but it's sadly what a whole bunch, I mean a whole bunch of Christians believe, that because of grace we are not under law means because of grace we don't even have to obey the law. And uh, I'll explain more about that in a minute. But the whole theme of the New Testament from Jesus through the apostles, right through to the end of the book, is that love is the fulfillment of the law. God obviously doesn't want us obeying the law with no love in it. He would much rather us just love, which automatically fulfills the law, and so he says, if a man without the law does the requirements of the law, he is fulfilling the law. But if he's doing the just requirements of the law, he's doing it because of love, because love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, Torah, which is the, the, the Hebrew word for law, many of you know this, it's very basic, but for those who may just be beginning nightlight, the word law in English is a word we tend not to like, obviously. We don't like law. Law makes us feel confined and watched and overburdened. And uh, we're glad that the Bible seems to imply that Jesus has set us free from the law. 
But that's not a very good understanding of the Hebrew word for law, which is Torah. You've heard me say repeatedly and others say that Torah comes from a root word, hore, which uh, comes from a root word that means to, to hit the mark. But it also uh, etymologically is a word that's related to guidance or parenting. So when David says in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. It has been my comfort day and night. Of course he loves the law. He loves Torah because Torah is the guide that helps him reach his goals and, and hit the mark that produces life. And so when the Bible talks about us no longer doing the works of the law, quote-unquote, some people think that means, well, you know, you don't do anything. You just you just live in grace, and grace covers your sin, and you pretty much bump along sinning. I mean, not grievously. Everybody knows, you know, you maybe you don't rob a bank and you don't uh, kill people. And I, I suppose some people still believe that you don't commit adultery or, you know, the biggies, they, they would say, of them, the law. Some people have even thrown that aside and think grace covers uh, anything they do, including their sexual sins. But uh, Torah, apart from love, is vanity. But love, apart from Torah, is also vanity. Did you get that? Torah, apart from love, is vanity. Oh, say, so you keep the law. That's what Paul's talking about when he says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I, if I give my body to be burned, if I feed the poor, if I do all these wonderful things uh, that are the righteous requirements of the law, but there's nothing in my heart of love for God or for the people that I'm supposedly serving. I'm just keeping the law because I'm a good law keeper. It's useless. But then he says, but having love that does not express itself in the righteous acts of the Torah is just as vain. It's just as empty. This is what James was saying, which we'll refer to more in just a moment. Love cannot be defined, therefore, apart from Torah. Now, let me give you some New Testament scripture for this. 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 through 4 says, And by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and follow his commandments. For this is what it means to love God, to follow his commandments. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't obey what I tell you? And his commandments are not burdensome because whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Now, the word faith here is, uh, I don't have time to go into a full word study on faith, but the, the Hebraic understanding of the word faith, which is carried over in the New Testament, by the way, is not 
believing the right set of principles. That's not what faith is. Imunah in Hebrew is faithfulness. The just by his faithfulness shall live. Not by his belief system. And I've heard whole sermons in times past uh, delineating the idea that faith supersedes uh, any kind of obedience and that if you have faith, you, you, it doesn't really matter if you obey or not. It, it doesn't matter. But I've already stated in our opening moments together, you, you, cannot, you can obey somebody and not love them, but you cannot love them and willfully disregard them and disobey them, especially God or any authority figure that is righteous. So this this idea of grace that I, it's growing and growing in many circles, the idea that grace is somehow just some kind of greasy salve that God slides over a broken, disobedient life. We'll talk. We'll talk more about that in a, a bit. But if uh, you want some more verses that go with First John five two through four, you might also look at Second John chapter one verse five and six, and First John chapter two verse seven and eight. Uh, just for another example, John fifteen verses ten and fourteen, Jesus says, "If you keep my commandments." You will abide in my love. Now, don't misunderstand that. That doesn't mean if you do what I tell you, then I'll keep loving you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying those who, who obey me are living in the circle of my love and are manifesting my love in their lives. And then he says, just as I kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Obviously, he's not saying the father would stop loving him if he stopped living in the commandments. He's saying that his living in the commandments is the manifestation of of love. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, by the way, you and I can't say that. You don't. You can't say to your friend, you know, if you do what I say, uh, then I'll be your friend. <laughs> But Jesus can say that because Jesus being the Father manifested to us in physical form is trying to teach us how love works. We we only love because he first loved us. And so how did he first love us? By teaching us how to live. Torah is teaching how to live. This is how Torah is related to parenting, which is, of course, loving a child into his true self. So John 14, verses 15 through 17, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will ask my father, and he will give you another comforter. It's really interesting, the Aramaic translation of this says, uh, another redeemer, one who brings the curse to an end by dwelling in us and energizing our new life. 
That's the real meaning of the coming of the comforter. He's not just somebody who puts his arm around you and says, there, there, I know you're a sinner, uh, but I'm going to try to walk you into heaven, even though you'll be a crippled stink pot when you get there. That's not what this is about. This is about not only being forgiven. Yes, grace covers us. Yes, grace uh, delivers us from the curse of the law. Yes, we are not under the law, if you understand that as meaning under the penalty and weight and burden of the law. But the Torah of God is not grievous. The commandments, the guidances of God are not burdensome, John says. Uh, Jesus goes on to say here, I'll ask my father, he will give you another comforter, another redeemer who will abide with you forever. The spirit of truth who the world is not able to receive because it does not see him nor know him for he dwells with you and in you. The Holy Spirit is shed abroad in our heart The love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit who comes and lives in us. Then in chapter 21, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, He who has my commandments with him and keeps them, he is the one who loves me and will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him or her. Did you get that? You you cannot find a reference to love in the mouth of Jesus that does not have commandments related to it. Whoever loves me keeps my word. Now, again, English is kind of hard to deal with here. You can look at that two ways. If you if you keep my word, then you love me. Or if you love me, you'll be able to keep my word. Well, the reason that you can interpret it both ways is their, inter, their interaction, they're interchangeable to some degree. As I keep the word of the Lord, I grow in understanding love. And as I grow in understanding love, I keep the word. And he says, my father will love the one who lives this way. He already does love him, but he's saying, my father will be able to manifest and, and, and reveal his love. And we will come, Jesus and the father will come and make our home with him. We will come live with him. But he who does not love me will not keep my word. Have you ever been around people whose very presence brings the presence of God. I mean, in an unusual way. The Lord is with all of his children. He loves all of us. He's with us and promises he'll never leave us or forsake us. But that's still not the same thing as what I've encountered on a few occasions where a person's life seems so caught up in the Lord. I don't mean religious people. I don't mean goofy religious weirdos who talk religion to try to impress you. I'm, I'm, the, I'm talking about people who never say a word. They don't have to say a word. The presence of the Lord is in them in such a way that he, when you meet them, you don't remember them. You remember the Lord. You, you remember God. Uh, this was manifested in the life of Charles Finney. 
uh, it was in Smith Wigglesworth. It, other people we could name, many people who no one's ever heard of, but God's heard of them and the devil knows who they are. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm approaching the winter of my years. And, uh, you know, you, you don't expect old heads on young shoulders. But I don't have young shoulders anymore. And I'm, I'm beginning to look back and evaluate so much of what I've given myself to, uh, that I thought at the time was important. And I am understanding more and more why Jesus said to Martha, uh, Oh, Martha, Martha, you're cumbered about with many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary has chosen that one thing that is needful. And that was to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear him in order to obey him, in order to love him. And, uh, uh, one, of course, one of my great mentors, Derek Prince, who was known uh, in the early days of his ministry for teaching faith. And then uh, later on, he was known for uh, teaching deliverance and miracles and moving and uh, healing gifts. But the last 10 or 15 years of his life, when I was actually privileged to be around him more than I was since the early days, uh, all he could talk about, hardly all he could talk about was love. Loving God and loving people. And uh, I just pray that that is working in all of us. You know, especially now in the face of the disintegration of the world. Uh, right now, uh, this very moment, I'm, I just saw on the news uh, that uh, uh, the buildup of our, of uh, artillery in the Pacific with China, the buildup of uh, American response to the Chinese buildup, the ongoing disintegration in the Middle East, the fires everywhere. People in Greece and now in Spain are digging through garbage cans trying to find enough to eat. You don't hear that on the news. But uh, in the midst of this, perfect love casts out all fear. He who fears is not yet mature in his understanding and demonstration of love. And so, uh, in order to prepare yourself for whatever may come, you don't prepare yourself by trying to stoke your faith or trying to pump yourself up to have the right uh, mindset I mean, all those things have their place, but if you want real power to confront the end of the age in peace, you cry out to God to perfect you in love. Perfect love will cast out all fear. And for those of us who tend to want to protect ourselves from the pain of love, because where there is love, there is pain. C.S. Lewis said famously, there's no love in hell and there's no pain in heaven. But on earth, where between the two worlds, where there is love, there is pain. And if you try to protect yourself from pain, you'll find you are growing in anxiety. Uh, but if you lay aside your fear of the pain of love and embrace love 
and serve and give and keep yourself vulnerable, uh, you'll find that perfect love is casting out all fear. Well, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 6, it says, Whoever loves me keeps my commandments. Deuteronomy 11.1 1 says, You shall love the Lord your God and keep his commandments. So this is not some new thing Jesus is saying. He's simply quoting the Torah. He is the author of the Torah and the living Torah. So it makes perfect sense that he would not change what he's already stated, but he would demonstrate it more fully. Now, in the New Covenant, uh, and here again, I could go off on this and start a whole other teaching, but uh, the the Hebrew term for the New Covenant, the Brit Hadashah, doesn't mean a new covenant. It really just means a renewed covenant. And I, I keep feeding in these statements because I'm more and more bothered by this false dichotomy that Gentiles have placed between the Old and New Testament to the point that some people don't even give honor and respect to anything that doesn't come from the, quote, New Testament. Uh, that's a That's a poor misunderstanding, a bad misunderstanding of how Scripture should be understood. But anyway, in the New Covenant, Paul says in Romans 13, verse 8 through 10, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he that loves his neighbor has fulfilled Torah. For this likewise, which it says, You shall not kill, nor commit adultery, nor steal, nor covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is complete in the sentence, You shall love your neighbor as yourself because love is the fulfillment of the Torah. Now, when when a believer, a, a supposed believer in Jesus, follower of Jesus, lives in a way that dishonors anything God has taught us in the Torah, he he steals, or he bears false witness, or he lives in adultery, or some other thing like that. In that way, he is not following Jesus. And if he says grace covers that, let's find out whether grace does cover that. Love fulfills the Torah, and Torah fulfills love. Psalm 119, verse 159. Consider how I love your precepts. Quicken me by your precepts. Psalm 119, verse 165. Great peace have they who love your Torah. Nothing shall offend them. The increased measure in the New Testament of the requirements of the Torah should tell us that under grace we should be manifesting a greater degree of obedience to the revealed will of God in Torah than was demonstrated in the previous covenant. Matthew 5, verse 27 and 28, you all know this. You have heard it said that you should not commit adultery. 
But I say to you, whoever looks at a person lustfully has committed adultery in his heart. You have said you shall not kill, Jesus says in another place. But I I tell you, you're not even to be angry on that level. Now, we're living around people more and more who think grace somehow is protecting their lifestyle and whatever they choose to do is okay because they're in grace. I mean, I'm hearing it preached more and more. Christians never need to repent. If you're in grace, you don't need to repent. I guess Revelations chapters 2 and 3 need to be torn out of the Bible and thrown away. Uh, Anyway, iniquity law, and love. Let's look at the whole issue of iniquity. What is iniquity? Matthew 24, verse 11, prophesied the day that would come when people would no longer have any respect for authority because iniquity shall become commonplace, shall abound. The love of the many shall wax cold because iniquity shall become... What is iniquity? Avon in Hebrew. It means to be bent toward. It means to... It has to do with bending, twisting, deforming. Uh, uh, iniquity is not trespass. Trespass is to step out of line. Iniquity is to step over the line and disregard that the line even exists. You notice Jesus says in Matthew 7 that there would be those in the end of the age that would say, well, we prophesied in your name. We did many mighty works in your name. Well, prophesying in mighty works has nothing to do with love. You can prophesy with no love. You can do many mighty works with no love. You can do all of that and have no relationship with God and no care for other people, just building up your own uh, portfolio for your own self-aggrandizement. And he says, depart from me, you practitioners of iniquity. I never knew you. I never knew you. You know, I want to tell you, you, you may, it's wonderful to have the gifts of the Spirit operate in your life. It's a wonderful thing. I've been very grateful for that. But I would have traded all of it to know that Jesus is mine and I'm his. Thankfully, I didn't have to choose between gifts and intimacy. And I pray that the gifts that have operated through me came out of my intimacy with Jesus. But evidently, there is evidently a certain kind of spiritual climate that increases toward the end of the age. I've seen it increasing now in our era where you just tap into spiritual power. You know, it's like, you know, hopping on the spiritual internet and just tap into the flow and uh, you can see demonstrable things happen in the physical as a result of the spiritual power you've tapped into. But it's possible to do that and lose your soul having never come into a right relationship with Jesus. And and see, evangelicals, 
they talk about a right relationship with Jesus, and I'm, I thank God for whatever they do that's effective. But I know some people who think, uh, you know, well, I said the prayer, and I walked the aisle, and I filled out the card, and I got baptized, and there's no change in their life at all. Uh, I, I heard uh, from a lady yesterday who uh, was in a difficulty in her marriage, and she went to her two of her friends in her prayer group, and they told her, and I know all these people, they told her she needed to go have an affair to pay her husband back for the way he was treating her. And these people sit in church pews every Sunday in this town. Depart from me, you practitioner of iniquity. I never knew you. Let me tell you, let me tell you something about grace uh, and, and the way this is being misunderstood. The gospel is being mistaught, claiming that the gospel destroyed Torah. Jesus, did not, Jesus said himself, I did not come to destroy the law, Torah. I came to fulfill it. That means to fill it full, not to say it's fulfilled and you can throw it away. He said, look, I, I came to, to fill it full. You think you're okay if you just don't commit adultery. I'm telling you the full measure of Torah, I'm going to fill it full for you. It means don't even look at someone to lust after them. You think you're doing okay if you just refrain from killing somebody, but I'm telling you, I'm filling the law full for you by telling you it's more than just refraining from evil behavior. You're not to have murderous thoughts in your heart, but the opposite, love, grace, and forgiveness. But, but see, we think we no longer have to obey. And every, so far, everything I've quoted to you from both both covenants, old and new, everything I've quoted makes loving and obeying the same thing. Grace defines, uh, or if you define grace as carte blanche covering and say things like, well, you know, we sin every day and I'm just a sinner saved by grace and uh, we sin so grace can abound. That We don't realize that's what we're doing. I mean, I've got friends who say, you know, I'm a sinner saved by grace. No, you were a sinner. You got saved by grace. But he who has begun a good work in you is finishing it. And if you think of yourself as still identified as a sinner, parenthesis, saved by grace. But the, the real identity is sinner saved by grace. You, you see what I'm saying? That's false. I was a sinner. I got saved by grace. Now I'm a saint, which means a set-apart one, a holy one unto the Lord. And I do stumble, and I do fall, and I do make mistakes, and I do sin. But when I sin, I am behaving outside my true self, not in my true self. But if you're just, quote, an old sinner saved by grace, and you sin, you're just living down to your true identity. When you do things right, that's the anomaly. The devil, I, I hate religion, and I hate religious cliches like, I'm a sinner saved by grace. 
I mean, it can be said in the right spirit with a true humble heart, and I can relate to it when it's said that way. But the way most people say it, it's just a stupid excuse to keep sinning and keep doing the same ugly stuff we've always done. And I, I choose to believe that he who has begun a good work in me is bringing it to completion. What he doesn't complete here, he'll complete in the resurrection and, and on beyond that in ways maybe I can't see. But I know that he has come to put away sin once and for all. He did not come just to forgive me and keep me a forgiven sinner. How ridiculous. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 through 14 says, you know what grace does? Yes, grace covers, okay? Yeah, grace covers. But is that all grace does? For the grace of God has come forth for the deliverance from sin and eternal salvation for all mankind. That grace has trained us to reject and renounce all ungodliness and worldly passionate desires. That grace is teaching us to live discreet, temperate, self-controlled lives while still in this present evil world. Awaiting and looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us in order that he might redeem, that is, purchase us, redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself his own special people who are eager and enthusiastic to live lives that produce good works. Now, I understand Martin Luther having a conniption because of uh, what he was up against with the Roman Catholic system of his time that had uh, made a blasphemous wreckage out of uh, the whole concept of repentance uh, with indulgences and old Tetzel saying, you know, uh, a minute after the a minute after the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs or some such foolish poetry as that. And so Luther hated anything that denied the grace of God as our only hope. And uh, so he said that the book of James shouldn't even be in the New Testament. But, you know, Luther had a blind spot where the Torah was concerned because his revelation of justification by faith, uh, which was God-given and true, uh, went way too far in its interpretations. Uh, I mean, you got to read all of Luther. You got to you got to get the whole picture. You know, people can misquote Luther and take him out of context and have all kind of wild ideas about what he thought. But fact is, he did hate the Jews at the end of his life, and he did attack. Uh, the Jews in a way that laid the foundation for Adolf Hitler to rise and use Luther as an excuse for the Holocaust. Uh, so when Luther makes statements like the book of James shouldn't be in the New Testament, I don't take that as being very authoritative 
or insightful. I'd rather take James than Luther. And you know what James says here about the whole idea of works? And you know this. I mean, I'm not telling you anything many of you don't know better than I do, but uh, the idea that, that faith is somehow separate from works and that you can have faith that doesn't work and somehow that's real faith has become the evangelical idea in the lives of many people. Now, good pastors, evangelical pastors, reformed pastors, they wouldn't believe that. They wouldn't teach that. But by the time it reaches the pew, it evidently doesn't get clearly communicated that real faith is faithfulness and that faithfulness will manifest the righteous deeds of the law by having obeyed from a love relationship, not out of fear of punishment or out of uh, some legalism of keeping a law. And people aren't getting that because the church is full of secret sin. Well, you know what? It's not even secret anymore. It's not secret sin anymore. They're celebrating sin on the streets, even Christians, supposed Christians. Because iniquity shall become accepted by society, the love of the majority shall wax cold. No, I like that King James phrase there, waxing cold, because it gives a vivid picture of the buildup of wax. You know how wax builds up and builds up and layer upon layer until finally you have so many layers you can't feel anymore. You see, when you walk in the obedience of relationship with Jesus, your desires begin to change. Your emotions begin to change. You begin to love what God loves, and you begin to hate what God hates. Your anger can become a righteous anger and your lust becomes a lust for more of God. Just as James actually says in, in chapter 4, we won't take the time to turn to it because it's a whole teaching in itself, that the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit lusts. The, the Greek text there is, is that he, he lusts, he longs for. Um, uh, in the same way that a man may lust after a woman, See, we always think of lust in, in a sense of perversion or sinful sexuality, but the, the word just means a burning desire. It can be a burning desire that's evil, or it can be a burning desire that's good, and the Holy Spirit lusts for something. What is it he lusts for? He lusts for you and me to become who we were really in, intended to be. That's what he lusts for. So do you think that the... the the plan of God is just going to be covering their sin so they don't go to hell, but bless their hearts, they'll just be old sinners saved by grace. That's all they'll ever be. The New Testament doesn't teach anything like that. So if you read there in James chapter 2, and we won't take the time to do it because the entire chapter is on this subject, so I, I hope you'll do it on your own. Then in chapter 4, where... It's a very difficult verse to translate, but uh, it says in the King James, it says, uh, 
you adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is to be God's enemy? Whoever, therefore, is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Uh, Do you think that the Scripture says for no reason that the Spirit that dwells in us lusts or envy or longs for um, see it's translated in the King James in a way that really doesn't make much sense but the idea is that it's the Holy Spirit longing for us to come into our true identity and then then if then it makes sense the next verse makes sense whoever uh, uh, verse uh, five uh, verse six I mean but he but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. See, the Spirit is longing for you to come into your true identity. This is a, a parallel with Romans chapter 8 where Paul says in verse 23, 24, uh, that the Spirit is groaning. The earth is groaning, longing to be delivered from the bondage of corruption that Adam's sin put it under. And we too, likewise, are groaning within ourselves, longing for the day when we will be fully manifested as the full-grown, mature sons and daughters of God. That, again, just negates the idea of, I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. Uh, Philippians 1 6, I've already mentioned, he who has begun a good work in us will finish it. Psalm 138, he will perfect that which pertains to me. Jude verse 24, to him who is able to keep you from falling and eventually present you faultless before his throne with exceeding joy, be honor and glory forever. First uh, Peter 5, uh, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Uh, after you have suffered a while, you will become strengthened, settled, established, and mature. First Peter chapter one, or Second Peter chapter one, uh, add to your faith, and then it tells you all the things you're to add to your faith, and then you come into the perfection of love, which is full-grown maturity. So I think I think we understand this. I, I know I'm probably preaching to the choir. I try I try to make sure I'm not telling you things that the Holy Spirit's just trying to get me to deal with in my own life, but <laughs> sometimes it bleeds over. Um, now, we get to the, the close of the New Covenant, and what does it tell us about how love and good works are one and the same? Revelation 14, verses 12 through 13, this call, this calls for endurance of the saints. Those who keep God's commandments and are faithful to Jesus. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow after them. The idea here is a a train uh, that your, your deeds are following you into the presence of the Lord. Notice, the deeds don't come before you, making a way for you to come to God. No. They follow after you because you have come to God. And in your union with Christ, in love and obedience, your life has produced great fruit which follows you in. 
Revelation 19, verse 8 says of the body of Christ, the bride, the whole church, the bride is clothed in radiant linen, white and clean, which are the righteous deeds of the saints. King James translates it, the righteousness of the saints, and people say, well, that's a robe of righteousness God puts on you, and you know, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but we've left out a very important word. It's not just a robe we wear that covers a dirty, stinking, nasty mess. It is God's grace working in us to produce godliness in our character. So it's the righteous deeds of the saints, not just a robe. First Peter, excuse me, First Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. King James says, the goal of our instruction is love out of a pure heart from a clear conscience and a sincere faith. Uh, the Aramaic translation here is the sum of the commandment is love. The way it's written in King James and in a lot of modern translations, it's Paul is saying the goal of the instructions that I give you in my teaching is that you will come into becoming people who walk in love from a pure heart and have a clear conscience and a sincere faith. But the, the Aramaic text is more, I think, accurate. The sum of the commandments is love. It's just a restating of what's already been said. Uh, we've quoted previously. Uh, Paul says it in Galatians 5.14. The entire Torah is properly understood in one word that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, Paul is not even quoting the entire mega commandment that Jesus quoted in uh, or stated in, in Matthew that we started with. Jesus said in response to the question, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul melts it down even more that loving your neighbor as yourself is the whole commandment. It's God saying, you know, I know you love me. I know you tell me you love me. You say you love me. You sing songs to me. You wave your hands before me. I love all of that only if it's manifested from a heart that also loves who's in front of you, loves your neighbor, loves your enemy. I mean, look, this is working me over. I'm just passing on to you uh, the beating <laughs> that I've been getting. No, it's a, it's a good beating. It's, it's a healthy, helpful thing. Because I just, you know, I don't think I'm very loving. I don't, I don't think I manifest the love of God very much. You, you know, you don't know me. You don't see me every day. And those of you who do know me and see me a lot, you know what I'm talking about. 1 John 4, verse 19 through 21 says, We love him because he first loved us. But from my studies, I'm finding that the word him is not in the earliest manuscripts. It's not we love him because he first loved us. It's we love because he first loved us. And the idea is we don't just love God because he first loved us. Oh, God, you you died for me. You, you, you saved me. You came after me. I mean, I do love him deeply. I'm very grateful for that. I always think of the, the words to my Jesus, I love thee, which was written by 
a 16-year-old boy. On the day he got saved, he wrote those words, In mansions of glory and endless delight, I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright and sing with a glittering crown on my brow if ever I love thee. Lord Jesus, it's now. Uh, uh, Another verse says, uh, I'll sing when the death dew lies cold on my brow. I think they've taken that verse out of the hymn books. We don't want anybody to know anything about death dew lying cold on our brow. Uh, No, but the old hymn writers had guts and wisdom and they sang about death. And they and he says, if ever, when the death dew's lying cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, Lord Jesus, it's now. Don't think for one minute I'm belittling great appreciation and love and gratitude for what he did for me, especially on the day of my death. Well, I feel that. But that's not what this is saying. We love because he first loved us. Everything we know about love, everything we demonstrate in love is because he demonstrated it, taught it to us, because he is love himself. If a man says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For if he does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? So this commandment we have from him, that we are to love our brother and to love God. So how do we love God? By willfully exerting ourselves, not in legalism of keeping laws, not in some posture of trying to uh, appease God's anger by not breaking a rule. That's not what that is. That's See, that's what the Bible calls the dead works of the law. That's Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, we repent from dead works. That's what dead works are. Dead works are those practices the Pharisees developed and encouraged that Jesus refers to. And note, I don't have time to turn to it, but in in the I think it's Matthew twenty two. Uh, I think, but G, read the whole New Testament, and you'll find it. Uh, Jesus says, "Don't keep the rules because they tell you to do it. Don't do it like they do it." Obey the law of Moses, but don't do it the way they do it. See, he's saying don't make, don't take what would be loving response to Torah and turn it into dead works of religion. See, he says do it. You know, keep 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 the law, but don't do it out of that religious spirit. Does that make any sense? So if I'm if I'm having a difficulty with some person and I really am wrestling with it, I can read all kind of neat psychology books about managing anger. Or I could do something a lot easier and better and more effective. I could go to my knees and ask Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit that lives in me, to, to help me love. And I could begin to do loving things toward this person. And lo and behold, I will start finding that my emotions are feeling loving toward that person. And I I know that's true. I've done it in my own life. Uh, I think most of us have at least some experience in that. But 
that's why Paul says uh, in several places, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil might say, oh, you're just putting on. You say, well, I, I am. I am putting on. I'm putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. I may feel like yelling, screaming, cussing, and throwing things, but I'm choosing not to do that. I'm going to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if after a while I keep putting him on, I actually become like him. And so John is able to say, as he is, so are we in this world. You actually become Christ in the earth. You become his hands, his feet, his heart. So close to him that when he comes, there's no big change because you've always been in union with him. His appearing just makes it final and complete. Also, please continue to pray. Continue to remember that you are a kingdom of priests. You are rulers called by the Holy Spirit to stand in the gap, to make up the hedge, so that God does not have to destroy the land. Uh, that if his people who are called by his name will humble ourselves and pray and seek his face. Seek his face. If you don't know what that means, then just do a word study on it. Study up on what it means to seek the face of the Lord and then do it. Get on your face and seek God's face. Cry out to him in humility for the sins of this nation so that God will not have to destroy the land. God bless you. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.